Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whenever I am in chains or defending and, and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Good morning, everyone, and welcome for those who are new to Chapel Hill. My name's Michael, and today we are starting a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's a letter about Jesus, and it's a letter about joy. Paul shows us in this letter in a very personal way that life in Jesus Christ naturally produces a supernatural joy even in difficult circumstances and even in unlikely places like the church in Philippi. You're thinking, why was the church in Philippi an unlikely place to experience joy? Well, to understand, uh, Let me give you an introduction to the historical situation when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. Firstly, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church in prison. Paul was imprisoned by the Roman Empire for proclaiming and defending the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul's letter reveals that he was under house arrest, manned by palace guards, And in the Roman Empire, imprisonment was rarely a long-term punishment. Most prisoners were awaiting their trial or execution. And so it's under the uncertainty of his trial and the threat of persecution and execution that Paul expresses his joy in the Lord and the joy of the Philippian church on pen and paper. But Paul's letter also reveals that the church in Philippi was in trouble. And Paul was concerned about three problems in the church. There was disunity, there was suffering, and there were opponents. The problem of disunity was high on Paul's agenda as he wrote the letter. Paul specifically calls out this conflict between two women in the church, Judea and Sintachai and more generally addresses grumbling and arguing in the church community. Paul also addresses painful and the discouraging experience of suffering in the life of Christians. His candid and open acknowledgement of their shared suffering gives us a glimpse of the church being in the groups of pain, sorrow, 
and persecution. And Paul expresses his awareness of the opponents of the church. And as we will learn as we go throughout the letter of this letter, the church was facing a number of different opponents, not just the Roman Empire. And so this is the situation. People in the church were in conflict. People in the church were hurting. And people outside the church was giving the church community pain and trouble. Yet Paul highly rejoices in the Philippian church compared to other churches that he has written to. And we can kind of get this impression that perhaps the Philippian church was the good church that Paul loved. And say, for example, the Corinthian church was this terrible church that Paul really had to go after and sort out. But the Philippian church, as Paul has revealed in his letter, was not an easy church to be in. But another interesting historical detail about the context of Paul's letter is about the surrounding culture of the city of Philippi. Philippi was a major city in eastern Macedonia. For some of you historical buffs, you'd be interested to know that it was named after Philip, king of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And so following the Roman conquest in the second century, the city became a Roman colony. And Philippi was famously known as the mini-Rome. Philippi took on the Romans' values, Roman practices, and above all, the Roman politics of ambition. In Roman colonies, there was very public divisions between citizens and non-citizens, between the free and the slaves. There were several layers and levels of social economic status in Roman society. Social status was highly prized and Roman citizens were ambitious to move up the social pecking order within the Roman world. And so this created a culture of forming political relationships between the patricians, which is the elite, and the plebeians, where we get the Aussie slang for plebs. And so the elites and the plebs would use each other, form political friendships for their own political gain so that in turn the elites would offer favours and patronage and assistance, access to wealth and power in order to gain recognition, enhance their social status. This was actually known as friendship, a Latin word amicitia, friendship based on self-interest and self-ambition. So if you're a fan of the TV show Billions, if you watch that, a TV show about a New York investment fund manager and a New York attorney general who they will and deal through favours and blackmailing their way to wealth and power. This is very much Roman culture in Philippi. These self-serving dependent friendships was a key market feature of Roman life. And so within the Roman society, there was this dense and complex network of patronage and political friendships, through that, that actually united Roman society. And so Paul's letter was motivated to speak into and against this politics of friendship that surrounded the church in Philippi to show a new and different kind of friendship, a new and different kind of partnership, that Paul says, a new and different kind of fellowship for those who are in Christ. So this is the situation Paul, their founding pastor, is in prison. There is grumbling, arguing, 
disunity and suffering in the church. The church is under attack by opponents. The church resides in a city that is cutthroat, where everyone is trying to use each other for their own gain. In no way does the church in Philippi seem to be a likely place to experience joy, isn't it? Very unlikely. It would seem more likely that if you were part of that church, you would experience stress, anxiety, anger, perhaps disillusionment. I mean, if you were to imagine yourself to be part of the church in Philippi, you could imagine yourself saying to yourself, look, the leaders, they're freaking out that Paul is in prison. They can't seem to agree on how to lead the church. This conflict between these two women, it's just getting out of control. And there are lots of people who are just hurting. I'm overwhelmed with these needs. Jesus and his church, it's just too difficult. You know what? I think life would be much better if I just sort my own crap out. I think I'll be much happier if I just focused on advancing my own career, achieving my own goals. Look, my colleagues, they're doing well. They've got the time to network and invest in themselves. I think all this church commitment is just holding me back. Have you ever felt like that? Perhaps you've been to a number of different churches. And in some way or some form, that thought has crept in your mind. And there was actually a point in my life that I felt exactly like that. I had gotten to a point that I'd grown tired of serving others and I felt that it's time that I deserve to serve me. And strangely, God had used that point in my life to encourage me to lead me to the path of becoming a pastor. Now, where I feel even more acutely the stresses and anxieties and pains of church life, you must be thinking, I must be a sucker for pain. And I've had people who try to encourage me and, um, and just fellowship with me, and they say, oh, look, mate, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. That's a, that's a hard job. And I'm like, thanks, guys. That's, that's really encouraging. But you must be thinking, man, the Apostle Paul must be a sucker for pain because... He wasn't just the founding pastor of the church of Philippi. He started a number of churches. Yet in the midst of all that is going on in the church at Philippi, Paul is able to experience a real joy in Christ and somehow is able to spark and ignite a joy in the hearts of the people that belong to the Philippian church. It's truly incredible as we read this letter it can only be supernatural with the way that he describes his experience with the Philippian church. It can only come from Jesus Christ. And as we read this letter, it gives us hope that we too may experience a joy in Christ in whatever we are going through in our lives and in whatever we're going through as a church. I know that life is hard and people are hard work. Conflict opposition, sin, sickness, death. They're real enemies to our joy. And we shouldn't deny our emotional response to them. Yet joy can be sparked and rise above these difficult situations because joy is not something that we conjure up. It's a gift from God when the life of Christ becomes our life. God gives us 
a new identity. When Jesus' identity becomes our identity, that is the key to Christian joy. And that was the key for Paul when he introduces himself and identifies himself as a servant of Christ, Jesus. In Roman society, as I mentioned, a servant, a slave, was the lowest rank in society. No one wanted to be a slave. Yet Paul chooses to voluntarily become and take on the identity of a slave. But not to Caesar, the king of Rome, but to Christ Jesus, God's king. And that is the secret to joy that Paul unpacks in this letter. It is taking on the identity of a servant and emulating his mindset, his lifestyle, his priorities, his passions as the servant king, Jesus Christ. And there's a really good old Sunday school lesson of what that looks like. That joy stands for J, to put Jesus first, O, others second, and Y, yourself last as a servant of Christ Jesus. J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. That is the key to Christian joy. And so throughout the letter of the Philippians, Paul will call us to emulate Jesus for his identity and life to become our identity in life so that in learning to die to self, we might find supernatural joy in whatever that we are going through. And Paul starts his letter by showing us how he's joyfully thankful for his fellowship with the Philippian church. Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Despite his present imprisonment, Paul thinks of others before himself and he prays for all of the members of the Philippian church with thankfulness every time he thinks of them. Paul shows us that this kind of selfless praying can actually be a good medicine for our own troubled hearts because it diverts our attention to our problems and adversities to the lives of others. And this refocus on other people in our lives can actually be a really good starting point to be a kindling for a joyful spirit to ignite. So whenever someone comes to your mind, why don't you just stop for a moment and pray for them? Not for their own good, but also for your own. To divert your troubled mind to be thinking of others that might allow yourself to have a joyful spirit. And that's exactly what Paul experienced because when he prayed for the Philippian church, he was always, always ignited into feeling joy because of the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel with him. The Greek word for partnership is koinonia. It's translated also as fellowship. And this partnership and fellowship is different to the friendships in the Roman society where people partner together for their own personal gain. Whereas the partnership in the gospel, followers of Jesus partner together not for their own personal gain, but to share generously the gospel to others so that others might gain 
the good news of Jesus Christ, that others might gain salvation and our identity in Jesus Christ. And there is really an undeniable joy that is greater than doing favours for one another, isn't it? Because when we selflessly work together to serve others as we share the gospel, we experience this, as you might testify, when we go on short-term missions. When we come together to serve the local community, when we come together to serve others at church on Sundays, and we get together to help people explore Christianity, there's an undeniable joy that's greater than receiving and giving favours from one another. It's very joyful when all of that works well, doesn't it? But can we be joyful when things aren't working well? You must be thinking, how can Paul pray with joy when he knows very intimately the real conflict inside the church and he knows the real opponents outside of the church that threatens their partnership in the gospel? I mean, really, wouldn't it be more realistic for him to pray with much anxiety and fear rather than much joy? I mean, where does he ground his joy in? How is it possible? We'll read that he grounds his joy in his confidence in God. Confidence that God, who started the good work in the Philippian church, will bring his good work to completion until Christ returns. Paul was genuinely joyful. It wasn't just lip service for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel because he trusted that in the face of opposition and in overcoming conflict, in those situations, it doesn't just depend on human initiative and human conversations and human endurance, but also there is God's sovereign and supernatural work at play. And man, we can be relieved and we can actually be delighted in knowing and to trust that God is in, at work in every trial, every tension, every disappointment as we work out our partnership and our fellowship in the gospel. And so the darkness of doubt and anxiety about the challenges in our church or our future, it can be lifted the darkness can be lifted with the knowledge that God is in control because he's the founder of every partnership in the gospel and he's the completer of every partnership in the gospel. Which is why I really like Rick Warren's definition of joy. He defines joy as this. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Whether it's good news, bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble, in encouragements, in hurts and in wounds, God is with us and God never gives up. That is why we can be joyful. And Paul goes on to say from verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. 
Paul is saying that it is right for him to feel this joyful confidence that God will continue to do his good work in the Philippian church because he sees the evidence of God's work in their sharing of God's grace with him. The sharing of God's grace is in reference to Paul's suffering in prison in chains, in the persecution as he defends and confirms the gospel. The grace that is referred to here is the grace of perseverance. So Paul is confident that God is at work in the Philippians because he sees the fruit and the gift of perseverance in the, the lives of the Philippian church. And this fills his heart with a Christ-like love and affection for the church. Paul is filled with joy in the fellowship of a church that is troubled because he prays for them regularly in confidence that God is with them and that he won't leave them so that they would persevere to the end and that they would accomplish God's intended gospel mission in Philippi. So now Paul gives us the details of his regular prayer life for the Philippian church. And we read this in verse 9. It says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. Paul prays that God will work, will continue to work to grow their love, to abound more and more. And the Greek work that has been translated as love is agape. And agape is a will-based, unconditional love for others. And agape love was an absolutely foreign kind of love in the Greco-Roman world. See, the loves that the Roman society was familiar with is storge, which is family loyalty, kind of a, a dutiful love. Philos, which is mateship, a mutual love between companions, and eros, which is a romantic, perhaps a sexual love. Whereas agape was unknown to the Greco-Roman world. They only knew about family loyalty, about mateship and companionship, and sexual love. They had no concept of a love that was unconditional, that was chosen out of a person's will. This agape love was only known until the advent of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. And so this is a love that Paul is praying for that is foreign to their local culture. And so Paul prays that the Philippian church will grow in this selfless, unconditional love. And as I mentioned, it's totally different to the self-interested love and generosity that dominated the Roman political social life but it was an unconditional love that asked for nothing in return. And it was a love, an agape love, that was marked with knowledge and depth of insight or discernment. It's a love that is effective because of having a deeper knowledge of God's truth, a deeper insight of his love and grace, but also it's a knowledge and insight of the person that we're ministering to. So that when we show our unconditional love, as we think through the options, we might consider what would be most helpful rather than hurtful, a way of love that would open a person up rather than for them to raise their defences, 
a love that would actually meet the person's real needs rather than their superficial needs, a love that will minister to the deeper issues of a person's heart and not just correct the surface behaviours that are evident. And as we have knowledge and discernment and insight, Paul says then we will know how to approve what is best. And the word best is not kind of like the, the most effective or most productive or um, most appealing. The word best is this idea of what is most centrally important. So that we might be discerning and have the knowledge to love in a way that will serve others that is of central importance. And Paul goes on to say that is to be pure and blameless. It's a love that would lead people into the most important aspect of our Christian life, which is holiness. I read a really, um, really helpful commentary by Paul Barnett. And we really need to be praying over that because he makes a really good observation in comparison to Jewish law and, I guess, Christian living. He says the Mishnah was this commendium of Jewish laws that applied to every aspect of life, every day of the year. In turn, this approach created a class of experts in religion and law who became effective rulers of these religious communities. If you're a lawyer, think of the Mishnah as case law. There's all these different cases and situations and the, the Jewish rabbis had different specific laws to handle all sorts of different cases. But he says, by contrast, Christianity is based on its key historical facts and a small number of key principles. For example, the primacy of truth and love. And he says, church ministers are not legal experts in a maze of intricate laws, but exemplars of faith and ethic that they teach to their churches. And because Jesus is full of grace and truth and not this kind of compendium or all different rules and regulation that lords over people, we need to pray for discernment and knowledge to prove what is best, to know what is of central importance to lead people to holiness. But this holiness is not about just being a really good person. It's not motivated by some sort of moral superiority, but it says it's to honour God and to his praises. It's to honour our lives with him. That's the, the goal, that's the desire, that is the end goal of what we're trying to do in the fellowship of the gospel. And so how do we ignite joy in our fellowship in perhaps troubled times? Paul encourages us to pray for one another, to pray for another not with fear or anxiety or despair, but pray with a trust and a confidence that God's fellowship cannot be thwarted. Think about it. For his church to be destroyed, it would have to go against God's sovereign will has to go against God's sovereign will. How reassuring is that? And we're encouraged to pray in that confidence 
to pray in that trust and to pray that as we seek to love each other unconditionally, that we'll be prayerful with knowledge and discernment to know how best to minister God's love and truth in a way that people will be pure and blameless on the day that Jesus Christ returns. I mentioned to you there was a point in my life that I was ready to give up ministry and I was prepared to pursue my own careers and chase my own goals, but obviously that didn't happen. And I think I want to share to you that the turning point was one significant evening. There was an afternoon where I was talking to my colleagues and we were talking about our future plans. I was considering my options. I was thinking about maybe starting an MBA and such and such and getting to one of the big uh, blue um, strategy firms. And I said, oh, look, I have to cut this short because I have to go to youth group. And he says, Mike, you are such an old man. You've got responsibilities. It's Friday night. Why do you have to go on to youth group? And so I left that conversation really disgruntled, really discouraged, and I did not want to be at that Friday night youth group. But as I entered that old church hall, what we did was a, a thing that we did at the beginning, which was prayer time before we did Bible study. And what I saw was a bunch of teenagers in threes, and they were just praying. And I looked at that, I go, this is pretty special. Teenagers on a Friday night who could do anything that they want were gathered together to pray. And this supernatural joy just filled my heart and it convicted me that there's probably no better place that I want to be than right here seeing a bunch of people, particularly teenagers, pray to God. It was a evening of prayer that really changed my life. It was that evening that I think I truly embraced the identity of being a servant of Christ. So would you do something to serve me today? I thought something that might add more kindling to the, my joy in Christ would you gather in threes and pray before we have communion as a way for me to kind of reimagine that first experience that changed my life? Would you do that for me? Would you just gather the three people next to you and take that opportunity to either confess and share ways that you haven't perhaps been confident in God's sovereign work in your life. Or maybe take the opportunity to pray for knowledge and discernment, to love in the best way that we can for one another. If you're not comfortable praying, that's okay. 
Um, we'll love to pray for you. If there's anything that is on your heart and mind, um, please share that with someone else and they can pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, church. What a beautiful sight it is. Let me lead us in Paul's prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we might be able to discern what is best and that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of our God. Amen. We're going to continue to remember and reflect on Jesus' unconditional agape love 